You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Verses 12 through 15. Before I give you any further instructions, I do want to read a card. It says, we want to thank our Mount Carmel family for all the prayers on Brother Tommy's behalf. Uh, they were heard and answered, maybe not the way we wanted in the end, uh, but God's way and will brought us here today. Tommy is restored and rejoicing with our Lord. Thank you also for the cards, phone calls, text, and food. We love you all and are proud to call Mount Carmel home. Much love in Christ from the family of Tommy Dodgen. And we want to say that we love you and we will continue to pray for you and Tommy uh, will be greatly missed, greatly missed. But we'll see him again, <laughs> and I mean that. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, I'm, I'm looking here off my tablet uh, today, but you, if you open up your bulletin, inside your bulletin, there's notes with a copy of the Scriptures. We want to make sure that uh, we're preaching God's Word to you, so you check, uh, make sure that we're preaching that. Uh, then also, uh, if you're not here with us and not uh, don't have uh, accessibility to those notes, you can do one of two things. Uh, if you text Bulletin to our text and church number, 706-525-5351, you'll get a link with our digital bulletin, and you scroll all the way down, and there you can click the link to go to the Bible app. Uh, if you've downloaded the Version Bible app, that's Y-O-U. Uh, after you download it, go to the More tab, tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, Click on today's sermon title, and there you can download all the scriptures. You can see those and share those as well. All right. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. I want to preach to you a message I've entitled, The Tempter's Voice. The Tempter's Voice. I couldn't help it. It was just a mistake. Nobody's perfect. It's their fault. The devil made me do it. I was pressured into it. Putting the blame elsewhere is prevalent in our culture. Someone once said, to err is human. To blame it on the divine is even more human. Sometimes we fault our circumstances, which are just simply too much for us. The student who cheats blames having such a demanding teacher and such a weak mind is the problem. The thief who steals blames his impoverished circumstances. The drunkard blames his partying friends. One of the commonest deceptions is that God has given me 
these passions and appetites that are so strong, I could do nothing but yield to them. You hear that a lot in our culture. Yet in James chapter 1, verse 12, I want to pause just to read that verse real quick. So just James 1, 12, it says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. That's the immediate context of what we're studying this morning. In James chapter 1, verse 12, there is a double or twofold result promised to anyone, any Christian, who faithfully endures or bears up under the pressures of life and trials. The first of that twofold promise is an inner reward of blessedness. Blessed, you could say it, happy is he, or I like even this one, congratulations. Congratulations. Now, if you're going through a trial, there is nothing happy or enjoyable about it. But as we've studied in previous texts here in James, that given divine wisdom and God's perspective on trials, we see the end result of trials and we're able to rejoice in them. That they're producing perseverance, and when perseverance has its full effect, it gets us all the way to heaven. Right? So congratulations. <laughs> Blessed. But then the second one is the crown of life that is promised. And it, and it very literally, if you wanted to treat it woodenly, could be tra uh, translated the crown that is life. And it likely refer, refer, refers to the future reward of resurrection. That you will make it to resurrection day. That's an awesome promise steadfastness also do you notice this in that verse steadfastness stick it to itness right in trials reveals our love for god those who love god they'll get up dust themselves off and relying more fully on his grace continue to run the race love remember this paul says this love endures all things that's the nature of love, not just between a husband and wife. That's between believers and the Lord himself. Love endures all things. Instead of persevering, what happens though? Here's what James is going to, to turn, to pivot on real quick. We're in James chapter 1 verse 12 to the text that we're going to settle in today. What happens though when we don't go to trial under pressure and we don't persevere? We don't stick to it. We don't remain steadfast. And here's what James is anticipating. We begin to rationalize that God is at fault for sending such a trying experience. And thus, we blame God for the failure. God, you put me in this scenario. What else was I supposed to do? You see how we begin to shift the blame? Back in antiquity, during this time, blaming the, quote, the little gods, the pantheon, that was popular. It was typical of a pagan mindset. The gods were erratic, vengeful. They were soap opera deities who taunted and tantalized humanity. And some Christians may have picked up on this and saying that it was God who was tempting them to fall and fail. He is to blame for our sin. 
And James wants to answer one question unequivocally. To whom does the tempter's voice belong? Who really tempts you to sin? James is going to answer it. Look at James chapter 1. And I'm going to read it in its full context. I'm going to include verse 12 as well. James 1, 12 through 15. It says, Bless, congratulations to the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. I believe that's resurrection. That God has promised to those who love him. Right? Who endures all things because of love. Notice what the text says. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he, that person, is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire is conceived, or has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, when it matures, it gives birth to death. Here's the thing that I want us to explore and unpack first. Number one, write it down. The tempter's voice is not God's voice. The tempter's voice is not God's voice. Because I, I want to grant the fact that when you're tempted, it may sound like the voice of God. And what I mean by that is the temptation may be so strong that you may think, no, nothing other than God himself could compel me this way. God must be behind this. He must have given me this passion. He must have given me this desire. He must have given me this appetite. Where else could such a strong feeling come from? And the scripture says here, it didn't come from God. Why? And write this down. It's because of his character. James can tell you this because of what he knows about God's character. James explains to us essentially that God is untemptable. You cannot tempt God. And it's not that you can't try to attempt him. He's just not drawn by anything you would, you would lay in front of him. God is unsusceptible to evil. Evil has never had an appeal for him. He never looks on evil and thinks, hmm, maybe. That's not who God is. It is repugnant and abhorrent to him. He gets sick to his stomach at the thought of sin. See, it's the exact opposite than us. Evil cannot pro e promote even the slightest appeal or a tug on the heart of God. Neither has he the slightest impulse then to trip you up. For his goodness forbids that he would seek your hurt. So if he's fully good, he does not want to harm you. That's not what he wants to do. A sinless being is incapable of enticing others to sin. Did you catch that? If God is ultimately sinless in his character, can he still have a sinless character and go, I want to see if you'll sin or not. That's not what he's doing. When he tests us, not tempts us, when he tests us, it is so that we may pass the test and inherit the blessing. When the reverse happens, the blame lies elsewhere other than God. This is the best illustration that I've read. <laughs> and you know, for those who know Josh, 
I am as mechanically inept as somebody can be. But imagine if I built my own car from scratch, right? Some people are like, man, ain't gonna work, ain't gonna run. But let's just say I got it up and running and it was working. And I subjected my car to tests, right? I tested it. Okay, everybody, I got, got some head nods. Yeah, test it. Now, if I subject the car that I made to test, is it because I have some evil intent behind that that I just want to see it destroyed? Anybody? No. I want to see how good my car will run. Now, let's just say my car does run pretty, gold, pretty good. What happens if a competitor goes and buys my car and puts it under the exact same test? What's his motivation? Is it to give me praise and accolade? No, what? It's to find out if there's any weakness in what I've built to exploit that. This is what the Bible talks about over and over again. You can pre be presented with a scenario in which God's perspective on it is, this will show you that I'm up to something good. And the devil goes, they'll never make it. They'll never make it. You see the difference in the perspective and the motivation? You can be going through the same trial, and the, the, the motivation on God's part is for your good. Pass the test. Inherit the blessing. Right? And yet all of your enemies will go, you're weak, you're a failure, it won't do. That's how that works. And it's the exact same scenario. So here's the difference, though. When we overcome trials, give all glory to God. What happens when we don't overcome them? Who do we give the glory to? That's the question. We're going to talk about it. Who's responsible for when we don't overcome them? But God's tempting is a moral impossibility. This is important because human inclination is to blame God and thus to assuage our feelings of guilt. But here's what I want you to know. Here's what you can take away from James chapter 1, verse 13. Are you ready? God is on your side. It's not him. Okay? And, and when we blame him, it actually shows the deceitfulness of sin. Okay? So whose is it? Number two, you ready? It's your voice. You're the tempter. The tempter's voice is none other than your own. Now, I know exactly what I'm saying here because you go, whoa, whoa, I wouldn't do that to myself. Again, you are underestimating the deceitfulness of sin. Okay? I want you to say, I want you to see this too. James, at this point, now he's aware of where, uh, aware of where all temptation can come from, but he wants to highlight one in particular. He is not, writing, write this down, he's not emphasizing Satan's voice in temptation, nor the world's voice in temptation. And what I mean the world is the lostness in the world that attracts to sin. All right? He's not talking about demonic forces tempting you. He's not talking about the magnetism of the lostness in this world tempting you. He's talking about your very own soul tempts you. Where so much present-day Christian preaching and conversation, and I hear it among us, especially, and I submit this with gentleness and respect, because heaven forbid, I mean, God help me to never fall. But if you ever see even a pastor caught 
in an immoral failure. I mean, Satan in the world is the first person we blame. Because we don't want to admit, it was me through and through. But the devil, Satan, the, the logic of the devil made me do it, does not, is not brought up here. Now, I'll, in full disclosure, James will bring it up in, in James chapter 4, verse 7. That Satan is busy tempting believers to sin. But here's the part that I need you to know, and this is the truth. This is the, good biblical theological theology. You can take Satan and all the demonic forces and everything evil in the world, throw it in the lake of fire today, and you would still sin. He could, God could eradicate it, all of them, all of our enemies today, except ourselves, and we still find a way to sin. It's our voice. Think of it this way. Is there anything that the devil could make you do that you couldn't do on your own? I don't need the devil's help. I can do it just without him. And that's the reality. So where does this voice, what's this voice in us that tempts us to things? Where is it coming from? I'm going to give you the theology of it right here. Number one, sin comes by your desire. It has to do with human desire. Notice that instead of putting an object out there in the world that's responsible for tempting us and dragging us away, like the devil being a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. <laughs> that's not what James says. In fact, he says it's yourself. You're the believer baiting yourself. And what many of us call Satan or Satanic is actually just self, sinful self. The word desire suggests something much more sinister is happening in the human heart. This is where we have failed. We have done a horrible job, pastors and teachers, have failed to explain the biblical theology of what happens in the human heart. Not the physical organ. I'm talking about in the essence of our personality, who we are. The word desire suggests something much more sinister. There is a spiritual pollution that is deep within you. Deep within you. And it has an innate tendency to sin. You are born a sinner. Hostile in your mind and heart toward God. A nature, a child, a child of wrath is what the Bible explains to it. You come from your conception... You are born going, I want away from God. All right? Any moment something seemingly harmless presents itself to us. Now, here's what you got to catch. So when we have a desire, and the desire may not necessarily even inherently be evil. All right? I mean, use, just use your physical appetite, correct? Is it, is it wrong to get hungry? No. But can hunger turn to gluttony? Oh, yeah. So what happens is you could take something that is natural, a natural desire, something that's not immoral or evil, but your sinful nature that dominates your being perverts that desire. You see how that works? And presents it to you in such the way of like, in the sense of anger, I mean, uh, hunger, 
go ahead, overindulge. You see how that works? And it, hey, and doesn't it seem so harmless? Absolutely harmless. Well, yeah, what, what could it hurt? And that is literally the bait. You've trapped yourself. Once you begin to think along those lines, we are lured and enticed by our own desires. Lord, <laughs> Lord here means to drag off and points to a dominating directive power. Enticed expresses the magnetism of desire, the hypnotic attraction of bait for a hungry beast. Now, here's a good question. This is a good theological question. You go, well, hey, Josh, is it really fair that I was, quote, born this way? And it's like, well, you've got to get the whole biblical canon into perspective. And here's a great synopsis, I think, of the doctrine. This is the doctrine. What I'm teaching you is called the doctrine of original sin. I've discussed this many other times. And the Presbyterians in their Westminster Confession, of course, the Presbyterians are very articulate when it comes to the original sin. This is in the Westminster Confession. It's like a catechism. Think of it that way. It answers uh, questions that people have about the Bible and theology. And this is the answer to the question that they give. It's question 25 about where does our sinful estate come from? How is it that we are born in sin? And listen to what it says. And I pr provided this for you so you can uh, go home and study the references. It says the sinfulness of that estate where into man fell. Now pause real quick. There's a difference between what we call the fall and original sin. The fall in theological terms is the first sin. Who committed the first sin in the Bible? Adam and Eve. All right. The Bible also makes clear that we were in Adam. That's a another sermon for a different day. But we were somehow present in Adam in such a way that we accepted his decision and we confirm his decision to sin every day when we do but when he fell he plunged humanity all of humanity in him into darkness and it's interesting in the garden real quick who was the tempter in the garden satan so now that the temptation knows this the, the temptation lies outside of humanity and then there is a willful rebellion against God to go along with it. But here's what we think. I think some of us think, well, every, every one of us is somehow born innocent like Adam. After that first sin, the fall, you are now born into a sinful, rebellious estate. That's the, what the Bible teaches. So notice what it says. <clears throat> the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin. We are held uh, partly responsible for it, culpable, okay? The want or lack of righteousness wherein he was created and the corruption of his nature whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good. What an amazing statement about human nature. And I'll go ahead and tell you, frankly, it's one of the reasons I believe the Bible because when I look at the world, I go, that's right. That's exactly my experience and what I see. It looks like a bunch of what, what the Bible calls sinners running around. <laughs> yes. The Bible diagnoses our problem exactly right. It does. Notice this. And wholly inclined to all evil and that continually, which is commonly called original sin, 
and from which you proceed all actual transgressions. So here's what's happening. So you have a now because of the fall, your sinful, your nature is now bent towards sin. It's predisposed to that. It's inclined toward it. So using the hunger thing, you have a hunger and your sinful nature goes, go ahead and eat some more. It's not sin yet. That's not sin yet. But what, is, what happens? When you actually go and eat some more, it becomes an actual transgression. You instantiated that desire into real space and time. You went, you, when your will comes into union with a sinful desire, it's called sin. You assent to it. Yes. And you don't even have to do anything to assent to it, right? I mean, Jesus says to lust after a woman. When you let your mind go through it, it goes, that's sin. You cross the line. So to be presented, I need you to notice this, to be presented with that temptation isn't evil in and of itself. The source of it is evil. And it's with you at all times. You can't stop from being, quote, in this estate of sin. You will be until Jesus Christ returns and redeems you bodily. As long as you're on this earth, you will always battle your own sinful temptations. You will. That's why we're told to resist and pray against temptation. But you can eliminate the devil and hell and you'd still be tempted. I like this one story. It says a young priest served in the confession for the first time. And he was accompanied by an older senior priest. At the end of the day, the older priest took the young priest aside and said, My boy, when a person finishes with confession, you've got to learn to say something other than wow. And I love that because, like, I submit this with generous, but the older I get, I'm not shocked anymore. And because of this, not because of how people are, I realize, you know what? That could easily be me. That's the point that we, we all share in this sinful estate. That's why I can't lift my nose at somebody. Like, I would never do that. But, like, given the right circumstances, I'd cross that line too. So no, no judgment. No judgment towards you. And if you were in my shoes, you'd probably do it too. We are all sinners and all are guilty of sin by commission and omission. Things we've committed and things we left undone were sinners. James cautioned believers of the danger of allowing sinful inclination to chart one's course, chart one's course in life. Let me tell you something that's dangerous in our culture and only Christians can point it out and they won't understand. So as an unbeliever, and believers still hear this same voice, and I don't mean it's actual an audible voice, I'm just talking about the urges, the desires. You hear over and over again that this philosophy of follow your heart, follow your passion. And what believers have to remind each other of is unless the Holy Spirit transforms our heart and our desires and our passions, to follow them is lethal. Why? Because they come, you cannot, here's where the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful, who can know it? You can't know whether that desire has been left untouched by your sinful estate. So you could literally be banking and living your life on an urge or a passion that has just deceived you. And this is why it's so important, and I'm going to get to it in a minute. Believer, believer, you have to stay awash in the word of God. 
because that's the only voice of truth that you have. <laughs> Everything else, and you're like, I, you know, I feel like, be, just be careful. I'm not saying, it could be true. You have to bring every thought and feeling captive to the Word of God. Well, how does that compare with the Word? That's the truth. That's the plumb line. Don't make any, if you make your own life, the, like your desires, the plumb line of your life, it ends in destruction and death, hell and the grave. That is what sin does. So don't follow that heart in the sense of unaided by the Holy Spirit, unaided by uh, the Bible, unaided by the church, unaided by prayer. Go ahead and follow that to your own demise. Number two, sin cons by your deception. <laughs> your deception. You go, well, it's somebody else, right? Like, no, you actually deceive yourself. And I mean, when I say you, I, I mean me. We deceive ourselves. Do not underestimate your sinful nature's ability to produce deceptive desires. Listen, none of us would sin if there wasn't this superficial attractiveness to it. There is pleasure in sin, notice, for a season. If it was terrible to sin, you would never sin. That's not what we're saying. Sin is delightful. But here's the difference, too, about its deceit. As you and I have gotten really good at using satanic logic that he introduced in the garden. We help rationalize our desire for a need. We say it's a need. When it's actually not. Sinful desire. <clears throat> loves to label us. With needs. And these are the expressions. The voice that we hear. I have to have. Fill in the blank. I can't do without. I would do anything. If only I could. Fill it in. These are all ripe. For the conception of sin and one of the things this is just another part in which we can transform our minds according to the word of god is when you're presented with an urge or desire or passion or feeling of any kind just ask yourself a simple question because how many times have you sinned and 10 seconds later you realize if i would have remembered how i felt now then i wouldn't have done it so ask yourself this question is it really a need or a desire just pause and a lot of the times the things that you think are needs, they ha you have to have, you've got to do it, they're not. They're not. You don't need it. And that probably falls into the category of sin. In his book entitled Temptations, this is one of the best <laughs> accounts of temptation I've read by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a German theologian, actually stood up against Hitler. Bonhoeffer describes how temptation works. Notice this, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. Right, talking about ourselves. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. So here's what happens when that takes over. Joy in God is extinguished in us. So the truth. And we seek all our joy in the creature, the created thing. At this moment, and this is the truth, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. The only desire for the creature is real. 
Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and, uh, and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The question presents themselves, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? That's what Satan does. Is that really what he said? Would, he would really hold you back from that? Is it really not permitted to me? Yes, expected of me. Now here in my particular situation to appease desires. And notice it is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. And let's just be frank. I love the part that I love when he talks about this. That is so true. When you're in the middle of temptation, you're not doing it out of spite for God or hatred for God. It's what? Just simply neglect and forgetfulness. It's like for those 10 seconds, just... It's like the sun's eclipsed and you just didn't think he was there. And then as soon as sin is over, what do you do? You go, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? And it's that deep, dark pollution over our desires that makes them so deceitful. When we are in the grip of lust, God is never more distant. We forget who we are, who God is, and ultimately, church, and this is where this is what Satan will attack. Because like I just said, the only voice of truth is the word of God. And if, and if Satan or ourselves can get us to doubt that, you've got no hope. I mean that. Who, who will help you discern your thoughts and feelings? It's only the word of God. James could not be more explicit. The source of temptation is not God or even the devil, but our own sinful hearts Church, we set the trap for ourselves. The last thing, sin culminates in your death. What happens when, all right, so you said just, it could have been a, quote, an innocent desire that your sinful estate pollutes, perverts, you assent to it, you cross the line. It's sin. And we, and, and y'all know this, well, it's sin, it stopped there, Right? Sin never does. You should know that. Sin has its own like gravitational pull. It's like a black hole. It'll suck everything it can into it. Right? So you feed it once and he gets a little bigger. And all he, he does, he's on his way to becoming a full-grown man in your house. And he's belligerent. Everybody get that? That's the picture he's painting. You birth this thing into your life. Next thing you know... He's bigger than you are. You thought you were going to tell him what to do. Now he's telling you what to do. What happened? All because what? You consented and conceived. He's born and now he's full grown. What are you supposed to do with full grown sin? What's it going to do? Check this out. It says, the act of procreation leads to conception, conception to gestation, gestation to birth. Once the process is set in motion, it takes over. It is inevitable. What is in the end is implicit in the beginning. See, we don't think about the full-grown man living in the house. It's just a tiny little baby. That baby grows up. That's what James wants you to understand. In Scripture, here's what he grows up to. So what's he grow up to do? <laughs> what's the career of your 
baby sin. He loves death. That's what he wants to become. I want to become your death. In scripture, death signifies the continuation of life, but in a changed estate. Isn't that interesting? Think about it. God tells Adam and Eve, you will surely die. Do they drop over death? No. But are they living life in a different estate than they were before? Oh, absolutely. And so if you think about when we talk about death, death is really just the change in our existence. We shed the body and our soul goes on. But this is not the intention of what God's design. It was unified existence. But here's the bigger one. I sincerely believe the more I preach and study that the physical shedding or the separation of body and soul is just supposed to be a picture or window. It's an illustration of what is the Bible considers ultimate death. And what is the death, the second death, the final death, the death of deaths. Not the shadow of death, but the substance itself. And it is a life being separated from the giver of life, God himself. Sin wants nothing more than to separate you from God, both now and for eternity. That's what we birth into. And I think this, I don't think people really go, I want to sin so I can spend the rest of eternity in hell. Nobody does that. Because it's not born that way. Sin's conceived, it's small, but it's all headed that way. That's what it matures to. Sin is. Here's another reason why I believe the Bible is true. Not only does it explain my experience, but when I look out over humanity, sin is the great destroyer of the human race. Sin is. I mean, because if you think of it, if sin had its will and its way, it would wipe every single one of us out. The fact that we're here, and this is what we don't get, we think because we're standing here, God must tolerate sin. No, he forbears it. Big difference. He forbears it in in his patience and kindness. He could execute judgment immediately. That's his divine prerogative, but he doesn't. But here's what I want you to think about. In the garden, in the garden, you had God who told Adam and Eve, if you sin, you will surely die. Right? And then you have the serpent telling Eve, you surely won't die. Right? That's, that's literally the, the decision and what it's going to come down to. And all we have to know in order to figure out which one was right is every hospital, every battlefield, and every graveyard tells us who was right. That's why he is called the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. He murdered us all. Why? By just having us doubt the trustworthiness of God's word. So what? Is there any help or any hope? <laughs> Does it make you sound like, well, I can't do anything about this? Jesus is the source of victory over sin and temptation. You cannot get away from him. He is the source. And this is the glory, the good news of the gospel. That here's what the gospel does. It's it can break the power of that sinful estate. It can break that power. Now, you will ultimately be removed from that power and glory, right? When we see him, we'll be like him. But even now, the Holy Spirit can come into your life and begin to halt what would be inevitable, okay? 
But the first step that a person has to take is that a person can no longer excuse himself, right? Or blame others. A Christian, if you're a genuine Christian, one of the things that I found about genuine Christians, genuine Christians have no problem admitting they're sinners. They don't. If I find a person who claims to be a Christian, like, well, tell me about, like, your sin. Oh, no, nah, I don't do that. You're not a Christian. <laughs> I mean, by token of being a Christian, you go, man, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. And we're not proud of that. We just, we are quick to acknowledge it. We confess our sin. And then repentance isn't just confessing or acknowledging I'm a sinner, but it is turning in full faith to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. He literally can remove them before God and turn away the wrath of God. And then the Spirit of God comes into our lives and begins to wage war against that sinful nature. And, and that should tell you something. The fact that even the Bible explains it as warfare should let you know that the Christian life is not easy. Because the way it looks is like, okay, so either you put sin to death or sin puts you to death. And the Holy Spirit's like, then I'm going to put it to death. And you're not going to like it. There'll be lots of times as a, as a person going, like, I really, and, and Paul talks about this in Romans 7. I really would like to do that, but I can't. And I should be doing this, but I won't. It's the truth. Go and read Romans 7. If, and I'm going to submit this, nothing wrong with the King James Version. Read it in a different version because you won't understand it. I'm just being honest. Read it in a different version. You'll see. You'll sit there and go like, oh, man, he's talking about what I feel like on an everyday basis. Like, yeah. And that was the Apostle Paul. The Holy Spirit, though, also provides us resources of sanctifying grace. Now, I want you, I want you to please understand what I'm about to say. Jesus is ultimately responsible from the break from the power of sin. Without Christ, all these resources I'm about to tell you are ineffectual. All right? Um, without the Spirit of God in your life, without this initial repentance and turning from sin and an embrace of Jesus that, that, that happens, that causes this degeneration, this new birth of life to fight against this old man, None of the things that I'm about to tell you are helpful. But if you've repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior and the Holy Spirit lives in you, then in this like this, the Holy Spirit uses these means to carry out and make this warfare against your soul. And here's some of the things that he does. Number one, he has given us the word. Given us the word. Remember what I've just talked about. I've just talked about the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. You understand that your Bible is every breathed out word from God. It is the very truth of God itself. So I'm saying is this, if you want to figure out in your life what parts of me are true and what parts of me are a lie, you're going to have to be in the word of God. That's what the spirit of God has breathed out for your sanctification, your instruction, for you to know the truth of how God really intends your life to be lived. The second thing is this, church. He's given us the church. He's given us one another. Isn't it true? We're here for one another to tell each other of our sins and dangers, not to be holier than thou. We consider ourselves, lest we also be tempted. Going, hey man, I understand if I was in your position, I'd do the same thing. 
But as a brother who's not, let me tell you, this don't look good for you. It's okay to do that. That's what the church is here for. He's given us one another to help sanctify us. The other thing he's done, and I believe this is true, he has given us song. Song. Song not only instructs us in the truth, but let's just be honest. Sometimes some of the things that we deal with, some of our temptations are just emotional at the core. We get down, depressed, tired, weak. And can a song not lift you up and to focus your eyes on Christ? He has given us prayer. Remember what Hebrew says, you do not have a high priest, an intercessor, who cannot sympathize with your weakness. This is what's so amazing about the Christian religion. Our God goes, yeah, I know what it's like. I know what it's like. I've been there. The beauty of it is we also don't have one of those, I've, I've been there and done it. Right? I don't need somebody who hasn't been victorious over it. I need a sympathizer, someone who goes, I sympathize with you and let me help you. Right? Get out of this. That's who, you, that's who you're praying to. And then the last thing I, I would remind you of is be assured of forgiveness. I do not, I know when the gospel is preached fully, because I do think if you're preaching it right, in some way people lean in and say, are you giving me license to sin? Like, mm-mm, no. No, I'm not. But I do want to remind Christians, hey, you battle with temptation, and you fall, and you fail. You take responsibility for it. It's not God's fault, it's yours. But I always want, to re- want you to rest assured, he is faithful, that means always, and just, he considers it right to forgive you. Why would God say it would be wrong for me to forgive you? This is so important. Because his own son bled and died to forgive you of all your sins. So his forgiveness isn't based on how many times you've messed up. His forgiveness is, has my son died for you? Yeah, then I forgive you. That's how that works. And let me tell you, I'm so glad that the forgiveness of God is grounded in the cross of Calvary that is done. Because if he only like drives you get a thousand times, I've done been out, man. John Corson, he's a pastor. He says, if you want to see the seriousness of the tempter's voice, your desire, what sin can do, don't just look at the wake of destruction in your life or in the lives of others. Go to the cross of Calvary. Look at this wonderful, perfect, loving person and see him on the cross in agony and pain and blood. It was when Jesus became sin for us that he died. Isn't that interesting? When he became our sin, he died. For sin always brings death. And yet here the the love of God sent his one and only son, who shed his blood on the cross for you so your sins can be forgiven. God is not against you. He is on your side. To whom does the tempter's voice belong? Not to God, not to Satan, not to the world. It's yours and mine. (laughs) We're our own worst enemies. May God have mercy upon us. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. Thank you for staying with me today. I've got two things, as always, to 
to encourage you, to challenge you. This, number one, if you've never repented of your sins and trusted Jesus as your Savior, today's the day. Today is the day. It's the day of salvation for so many reasons. One, because it's provided for you today. You don't have to wait. Jesus has already bled and died, rose again. He is seated on the right hand of God the Father and hears our thoughts and whispers and prayers. And you can call out to the Lord and be saved today. Be forgiven. The other thing that I, I would encourage you with is this. With gentleness and respect, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. That's why also salvation is today. But if you come to the grips of what the Bible teaches, that you are a sinner, you deserve whatever judgment that God would deal out, which is eternity in hell, but you see that God in his love for you has made a path to forgiveness and freedom in Christ, then I call on you to call on him today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, will you pray this prayer, repeat after me, in the stillness of your heart, to King Jesus. Just say, dear Jesus, I confess I am a sinner. I am responsible for my sin. But I believe you love me. You came to this earth, lived a holy life, and you shed your blood to forgive all my sins. And I believe God raised you from the dead to forgive me. Please forgive me. Come into my life and wage war against my sin. With every head bowed and every eye closed, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Jesus teaches that the next step in your walk in following him is to be baptized. Baptism is when we show the church and the world that we believe in Jesus' death for our sins. When we go under the water, we're saying we identify with that. And then when we come up out of the water, we're saying we believe and identify with Jesus' resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. If you've never been baptized, fill out that tear-off panel on the back, click Baptism. Text BELIEVE to our text and church uh, number. Go to our website, fill out the baptism form. All you're doing is giving me a chance to talk to you about the next steps of baptism. The second thing is this, church, I pray that you know this prayer. This is what we call the Lord's Prayer. And it was disciples who came up to Jesus, the Son of God, and said, Jesus, teach us to pray. This is not necessarily something Jesus prayed. In fact, I don't think Jesus, he probably prayed parts of it, but parts of it wouldn't even have anything to do with him. But this is what he said. This is my, my disciples, my followers, my believers. They should pray this every day. And I just want to pray this over you and encourage you to pray along with me. And after that, we'll have a time of reflection. And you can begin to pray safely. It says this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And notice this line. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray that? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you that when we were at our absolute worst, you sent your absolute best. You bankrupt the heaven and gave, gave us Jesus. And Lord, I pray, Lord, you know the temptations and the desires of my heart and every one of your children that are sitting here today. And we ask that your Holy Spirit help us to wage war against our sin. Lord, may we be quick to confess our sins to you and to one another and to seek your forgiveness that is assured to us because of Jesus' death on the cross. May we not abuse your grace, but take advantage of, our, of your grace to, to get back up today. No matter what sinful state we find ourselves in, to get back up and to pursue holiness in Jesus' name. We thank you, Jesus, for your work on the cross. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for changing us. Uh, have your will and your way. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people said, amen. Uh, we're going to call ourselves into business. If you're a visitor and you need to sneak out, we will not hold it against you. Uh, but if I could have a couple of deacons come forward and pass out the ballots. Uh, the ballots just simply read, I confirm the following three men to serve as deacons for the upcoming term. That's Terry Doran, David Harris, and Jason Newsom. And it's a simple yes and no. And then after um, we collect these, we'll have our last song. All right, so somebody come pass these out. There we go. And while they're passing them out, I'm going to go over a couple of, uh, of just brief announcements. Uh, if you had problems RSVPing for church this week, the reason being is the platform that we're using is updating. Uh, you, you'll notice this in the next uh, week or two that instead of like reopen.church, it's going to be RSVP.church. And what they're doing is they're revamping so that they can, they have. Uh, a better leverage for some of the, the COVID-19 needs. And you're going to see some things uh, uh, that change for our stuff, but, but please know this, please know this, that all that we still need from you in order to uh, RSVP for church in advance is simply your name, 
the number of people you're RSVPing for, and then it, it takes an email address because it, it wants to send you a confirmation email. Everything else that you might see on the form from here on out is completely optional, uh, but they are a good way to communicate with us. You also uh, can still RSVP uh, by the tear-off panel. Just check the appropriate box, drop it in the drop box. Do we need any more ballots? Everybody got the ballots that we need? And or need a pencil, I think that's what they got or something. Um, but what I was going to say is uh, you can, you know, drop your uh, tear-off panels uh, in the drop box or you can go to our website and click reserve. Uh, that will send you the link or uh, you can text RSVP to our text and church number. And so the link should, like what I would tell you is if you've been going to a link, like you've saved the link or bookmarked the link, in the next week or two, I'd be shocked if it's not phased out and we're using a different uh, URL. So just trying to give you the heads up if one day you go to there and you're like, where is this thing at? Uh, because it's going to be different. All right. Everybody do your vote. All right. We'll go ahead and pick them up. You got them, fold them, hand them to a deacon. And uh, we'll give you the results next Sunday. Anything else? And then uh, Pastor Aaron's sermon series will continue. He's doing the commandments of Jesus. That'll be at 6 o'clock tonight online. And then I'll be in Revelation chapter 6, looking at the, the last part of the sixth seal. Um, and uh, on Wednesday, Lord willing, at uh, 7 o'clock. And then um, I'll, I'll have some other updates for you with other members. Everybody good? All right. Brother Rick, will you come and lead us in our last song? Interesting, the way the Lord works, and what a marvelous, marvelous message this morning, truth in the message, how it steps all over me, how it does do its work, sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting asunder what really and true the Word of God is, and then when Brother Josh <coughs> had the Lord's Prayer listed, I just, I can't, it's going to take me just a minute, you got to bear with me. This week, it was amazing because this week I woke up one night and just could not get back to sleep. And my heart and my soul was flooded with this reality that all you men out there that are 60 and over with me, we, the reality of America, what used to be America, was that I, my government, helped lead me to Christ at one time. Is that not hard to believe sometimes? When we were kids and we were in school in the 60s and early 70s, we were allowed, I guess, in me, in my, in my mind, as God was revealing all this back to me to remind me of what America used to be like, it was kind of like I was forced to go outside and of all the scriptures, I weren't raised in the church. We never, never went to church. And so I knew nothing about how the church operated or who God was in, in the eyes of the church. So, but believe this, America at one time taught me, I realized, just flooded back on me, that they're the ones that helped lead me to Christ. Ain't that, uh, it was like, Rick, you guys that are 60 and over 
y'all know I'm telling you the truth all across this country. You went outside and every function you had, whether it was in the auditorium of the school or it was in the football field or basketball games, every function that people came together, we all stood. And I knew the Lord's Prayer. How many verses is in the Lord's Prayer by heart as a 10-year-old or an 8-year-old? As soon as I could begin to know it. And I looked back and it was like America was teaching me this, my government. And then we would go home, three major stations, CBS, NBC, ABC. One of them, two or three times a year, would cover Billy Graham Crusade five nights a week on a major channel as I'm a kid. And I got to thinking, it was just like God was saying. And believe me, I, I didn't even know about it. I didn't want it. I wasn't raised to love that way. But my government was teaching me and showing me the way to Christ. Is that not incredible? And I seen that. You guys know I'm talking the truth at my age and older. And we seen Satan rise up also in them 60s and those little verses Braden taking prayer out of school. He also was throwing in his seeds also. But at one time, America kept leading me to Christ. Wow. America, young people, we're handing this down to you. You didn't see it. You're not seeing it. You're seeing America in a whole different way now. But I'll fail you if I don't tell you the truth about the history, some of our history in America. And I pray that you'll grab hold of that. And somehow or another, if we could just say that Lord's Prayer again, I knew it by heart, how many verses, man, I got looked in the eye. And we could begin to, maybe that's why God said Jesus himself, the Lord said, when you pray, pray like this. Wow, that's in the Word. Never go wrong. Possibly, could that possibly, young people that didn't see that, we did, could you grab that and believe it and begin to bring it back somehow? We can have Facebook now, whatever, you know, whatever communications are now. I believe if we could, we could turn and could speak his faith to the hear from heaven heal our land. Let's stand together as we sing that. Heal our land. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.